Hello, I'm your host, Carson Silas, a contributing writer for The Crimson White, and this is Off the Record, a podcast diving deep into the history of the university and the state of Alabama. Today, we're looking at the records of the historic Bryce Hospital and discussing what caused its decline. In order to do that, I talked to an expert. I'm Steve Davis. I'm the historian for the Department of Mental Health. Had that job since 2007. I've actually worked for the department for 46 years. Uh, Director of Public Relations at Bryce and HR for more than 28 years. And they've done this, as I mentioned, since 2007. The beginning of the hospital can be traced back to Dorothea Dix, who came to Alabama and advocated for humane mental health treatment. So how did Bryce Hospital begin? Well, there was virtually no treatment for anyone that had mental illness during that time, as you know. Uh, Dorothea Dix, many think of her as like the first social worker. Uh, She was a kind of a complex individual that uh, uh, from a wealthy extended family, not her immediate family, but from a wealthy extended family that was really into social reform. And we're talking in the 1840s, uh, 1850s and so forth. Uh, Probably best known in history as a nurse during the Civil War, but really that that would disturb her greatly. And the three things that seemed to be her passion were women's suffrage, abolition of slavery, and prison reform to begin with. But as she went into jails, what she saw was the same thing you see today. There are a lot of people that are locked up, Los Angeles, California, Miami, Florida, uh, Chicago, Illinois. That's some of the biggest concentrations of people that need, uh, need mental health care in the United States and in Cook County Jail and so forth. And that's what she saw, is there are a lot of people who are in jail or in prison that need to be in a hospital or either need to be treated for uh, their mental illnesses in the community. And so that, that, you know, she she brought that to the forefront, uh, had an advocate in Alabama, a guy named Henry Collier. Uh, He was Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, was from Tuscaloosa, later became governor, as you know. And so she was able to get a bill passed. Um, th- there were hospitals before Dorothea Dix came, uh, and there were 13 kind of famous ones. Thomas Kirkbride was over the organization that tied those together. He was from Pennsylvania. Um, so once the bill got passed, then the, the hospital physically began to get built. Uh, but this is Alabama, so they started in 1853 and didn't finish till 1861. It wasn't finished when the first patient came. And there's all sorts of political movements in, in the background, trying to move it to Selma, move it to other places. Tuscaloosa, as you know, lost the state capital uh, during that time. And uh, that was probably some of the payback to, to get Tuscaloosa to support Montgomery versus Huntsville during that time to, to get uh, Alabama State Insane Hospital, which was the original name of the hospital here. Uh, so that's how it got started. Um, as I mentioned, you know, construction went off and on for maybe seven years to 1860. Uh, Alabama Medical Association sent Dr. Lopez from uh, Mobile to go across the nation to see what other facility, what other states had done. Came back with a Kirkbride plan, obviously the guy that, that designed it. I do believe Alabama Insane Hospital was the only Kirkbride building that was built on an Italiante type style. The university had the dome library that was later burnt, but you know, uh, Nichols uh, dome there. Uh, and so Bryce has sort of a corresponding architect. Bryce 
Alabama State Hospital, University of Alabama have been tied together forever. They were both two miles from Tuscaloosa, very little between Tuscaloosa and the University or uh, Alabama State Hospital. Um, first superintendent, a guy named Peter Bryce, was nominated by Dorothea Dix to be the first superintendent and by Thomas Kirkbride. Um, we have a letter from Dorothea Dix saying, you know, you, you have to be married. Alabama law says you have to be married. Is that a problem? He said, no, I've got a lady picked out. He gave great detail about this woman from North Carolina who he did not marry. He married a lady from South Carolina and hadn't been in the United States for like six months in the last three or four years. He'd been in Europe learning moral treatment. So he knew a lot more about teaching uh, people to uh, care for others than he did picking a wife, although he got a wonderful wife. Uh, one of the most unsung heroes in Alabama, um, Ellen Clarkson Bryce is just uh, an amazing woman in her own right. Uh, but anyway, he was first superintendent and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the first patient was uh, committed uh, exactly one week before the start of the Civil War. A Confederate soldier whose diagnosis was mania A caused by political excitement, just kind of showed up out of the blue uh, a lot of urban myths about the start of Bryce that's simply not true. They're out there about people coming up on steamboats and things. But, you know, uh, this this guy, you know, was committed before Peter Bryce is ready to have patients. So he doesn't even have staff, really. Uh, Bryce had intended to open the hospital on July the 17th of 1861. This April 5th, we get the first patient. Um, and, of course, you know, that, that was trying times. Hospital was built to hold 250 people by 1869. It bypassed that number in 1872. Peter Bryce started talking about the hospitals overcrowded and, and you know, that, that theme has run through throughout the history. Um, uh, all Kurt Bright hospitals had a west wing and a east wing. Uh, they were built to draw the air up through the tower. Uh, this one has steam heat in the basement. Uh, probably the first indoor plumbing in West Alabama, the Jemison Mansion, they lay like to argue that they had it, but construction began on Bryce Alabama Saint Hospital before it did. You know somebody flushed that toilet at some point before patients got here. So uh, anyways, the same architect designed Jemison House on Greensboro that designed Bryce Hospital. Uh, so that's sort of the early days. Uh, the hospital from the very start almost had to be self-sufficient. It did survive burning of the university. Um, as I mentioned, it's always been connected. Uh, Peter Bryce was going to allow the university to have students at Bryce Hospital, at Alabama Insane Hospital in 1865 after the university was uh, burnt to the ground, so to speak, but there was not there was enough space for the few students that came back, less than 20, I don't remember exactly how many. Uh, but Peter Bryce and uh, Josiah Gorgas were good friends, Mia Gill Gorgas and Ellen Clarkson Bryce stayed extremely good friends until you know the early 1900s. Uh, they were also into social reform with Julia Tutwiler, you know, who got women admitted to the Alabama probably before uh, they would have been without her influence. And so those three women kind of had the same thinking process as Dorothea Dix. Uh, women's education. Peter Bryce spoke almost open every open of a women's school in West Alabama. Uh, uh, and they did a lot for education, all three of them. And, uh, that, you know, Julia's a little better known uh, outside the university campus, which still has a lot of buildings named for Amelia Gilgorgas. But, uh, uh, but those, those were three women that really changed Alabama. One small story, the 
the Kilgore House, which has been torn down uh, when the women were first admitted to the university, I think the plan was that they couldn't live on campus and therefore they'd be tardy to class and you would get rid of women pretty quickly. But uh, Bryce Hospital let those four women students live at the Kilgore House and they actually were closer to classes than uh, some of the men's dormitories and Alabama's had women students ever since that time. So again, there's just a connection all the way through uh, between the two facilities. When looking at the treatment of patients at the time, Bryce seemed like a revolutionary institution. Is that true? Yes, very true. Peter Bryce really believed that uh, any kind of mechanical restraint uh, would be the last thing you do. Most places, if you had someone that was committed, that was one of the first things that was done is people were constrained or locked in small rooms and so forth. Um, he believed in uh, uh, outside sunlight, uh, nature, uh, allowing people to not have pressure on them. In 1861, he wrote, you know, what we have to do is catch mental illness early. We know that's true. You need to have family support. We know that's true. It's be better to keep patients near the community in which they grow up. And, and you know, that's that's sort of an emphasis that the mental health had, department has today as we're doing crisis centers all across this, the state uh, so that people aren't transported far away from their home. 1884, the hospital was recognized as one of the four greatest in the world, and Peter Bryce said that they had had no mechanical restraint that year, so uh, I'm not sure I believe that quite candidly. Uh, in today's world, what we call mechanical restraint, but I don't think they had people being shackled and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, he, 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 he was an advocate of moral treatment. Um, and you won't see this, this is a Steve Davis definition. This is not you'll see in Wikipedia or anything, but basically you're tr treating people for their illness and not for the fact that they would be inmates or that they should be locked up, even though many were uh, on locked wards. But, but even when I started to work, uh, patients had ground times that could get outside. So he felt that was really important. So yeah, he was really advanced for his time, supposedly the most, uh, trained person and not guilty by reason of insanity, was actually asked to testify at uh, John Garfield's uh, assassin's uh, ghetto's uh, hearing. He did not go, uh, but actually wrote a letter uh, supporting uh, the defense of, of the assassin. So, uh, you know, man, uh, way ahead of his time in many, many ways. The institution started to face problems. It had issues with overcrowding, it gradually lost funding, and needed to become self-sufficient. Eventually, this snowballed. How did all of these factors affect the way the institution ran? Well, as I mentioned, almost from the start, the, the institution had to be self-sufficient. Uh, I mean, having a hospital farm was a given when a hospital opened like that. And so the given is that patients work on the farm. It's totally alien to us today. I can't imagine gathering up all our patients and making them go work in the fields each day. And yet that was commonplace. And that was commonplace across the United States. But obviously as time goes on, uh, treatment of, of people with a mental illness really didn't keep up with the times. Uh, uh, the hospital got bigger and bigger. Um, and uh, they just kept adding wings to the building at one time, you know, Urban Myths, the third largest building in the world. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, Ripley's, believe it or not, said it had the longest roof line in the world. I don't know if that's uh, you know true or not, but it's a huge building. I mean, there's no doubt about that. 
And when you start giving 3,000, 4,000, 5,299 patients the most at one point, people suddenly become numbers and not, you know, not so much individuals. And Peter Bryce wrote about that. Kirk Bride wrote about that. Don't get a facility bigger than 250 people. That's about as much as you can have at one place and, and everybody keep their individuality. Uh, treatments, you know, were often somewhat uh, new. I mean, uh, you know, and you had things that like lobotomy, which was just a disaster uh, in the history of treatment. Uh, ETC is not necessarily a disaster today, but it was at the time. It's actually a, 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 a treatment that's used outside the price of public institutions don't use it much anymore. Um, so, you know, you had basically just warehouses of people that their treatment was, well, you're not in society, so you can rest from that, but at what point do you get better? And if you're forgotten, then, then you're, you know, you're, you're locked up and you get three meals in a day and you get complacent, do, do you grow as an individual? And so that's, I think that's really what happened. And, and uh, uh, you know, and, and so there, there wasn't a change, a lot of change from the end of the moral treatment era, which was near the turn of the century, the uh, 1900s, uh, 20th century, um, until the 1970s. And then you saw a nationwide movement. Uh, the first laws that started putting treatment centers in the community, the first federal laws, which would seem a long time to you, but not to me, was 1963, and the first state laws, 310 boards, was 1967. Um, so when you get into the 70s, all this is new. Uh, and so, you know, you get, you know, what could have been before then, that's just the way it was. And so that was an evolution of, of Bryce Hospital, uh, you know, named for Peter Bryce at the time of his death and other, other states, by the way, so. It's important to understand that Bryce Hospital's history is a tale of good intentions. It was founded on the idea of humane treatment, but systematic problems presented insurmountable issues. I think there's a, a, certainly a huge element of truth in that. Um, uh, I, you know, several people, one of Dr. Searcy's sons wrote a book, we did the best with what we had, sort of saying that same thing. Uh, we didn't have money to do the things that we wanted to do. Uh, Dr. Partlow was very good friends with Dr. Denny was president of the university. Dr. Partlow was at uh, Bryce. And of course, again, side by side, they knew each other well. And uh, Dr. Partlow once said, well, we have to advocate for our clients because our alumni aren't very powerful and the uh, university's alumni, of course, are powerful. So uh, there, there is that feeling, um, you know, so I, I, you know, change just came slowly with mental health. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, we're kind of coming full circle now where we're, we're actually doing with the crisis centers that you see again created are, are really good where you have, rather than just sending the police and somebody's making the disturbance, you also send out uh, healthcare workers to see, all right, is this person, uh, are they high on drugs? And that's one of the first things, if you try to uh, commit yourself to a local mental health center, they test. And, and if you're not, then is this a psychiatric episode or is this just a bad person acting out? And then you kind of go from there. And so it's been a long time coming in there. So, so what was Wyatt B. Stickney and how did it change the way we think about mental health treatment? Okay, Wyatt Stickney is probably the most famous case that deals with people being committed to an institution. Uh, and I mean that worldwide, not just Alabama. Uh, and uh, yeah, Ricky Wyatt was a 15-year-old uh, person 
person at price. Um, it's, it's well known. Uh, Alabama had a cigarette tax, which was earmarked to fund mental health. That was a temporary tax, and when it uh, when the date ended, uh, no one renewed that, and so mental health lost its funding. Anytime you just throw things out, I mean, it's more complex than this, but basically what happened was Bryce Hospital was going to catch the brunt of that. Not There, there were three other facilities at that point in time, uh, or two other facilities at that point in time. And, uh, you know, basically what they did at Bryce was lay off all the professional help and just keep the people that were just doing the, the routine things like bathing patients, saving, uh, feeding patients. And Alabama employees sued to get their jobs back. Judge Frank Johnson's fairly famous judge in Alabama, uh, not fairly famous, extremely famous judge in Alabama said, you know, you don't have a suit, but if these people are committed against their will, they, they deserve to get treatment. And so that's, what, that's how this, the court case started. White versus Stickney was just the commissioner of mental health. Uh, he later said he did that on purpose to start this lawsuit. Uh, uh, and, 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 but uh, it went on for 33 years. Uh, and Dr. and uh, Judge Myron Thompson, I heard say one time that no matter where he goes, and he, he mentioned China and Brazil, he could get off a plane and somebody says, oh, you're the guy that, that's of the white case. So um, it did a lot of things. Uh, if you're accredited as, as a hospital for the treatment of people with mental illness today, a lot of the battles that were fought in white now are how you get accredited. And Bryce Hospital's accredited, so is uh, every facility in the Department of Mental Health. Now we understand what caused white bee stigma, but I want to understand a little more about its effects. So what happened after it? Came up with terms like uh, qualified mental health professional and things that we use today. Uh, but that's, you know, it, it just lasted forever and ever. Uh, a, in a broad sense, it set the stage of what you have to do to treat people who are committed against their will in, for, for treatment. In a narrow sense, it really caused the Lynch versus Baxter lawsuit, which completely changed the commitment laws of Alabama. In an acute sense, it was more dramatic than Wyatt for a short period of time in Alabama, because Alabama admitted that our, our commitment uh, laws were unconstitutional and changed those. Um, so it did all of those things. Uh, some states decided just to close facilities. Uh, Alabama never did that. Uh, we do, we're down to three. At one point we had three for 110 years, then had as many as 14 facilities, and now we're back down to three again. But we can do that because of mental health centers across the state, Alpha Point and uh, JBS and Westside and Eastside. There, 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 you know, there's several uh, Indian rivers here in Tuscaloosa. Um, so a lot of much more treatment going on in the community than in facilities. And Wyatt was a great mover in that also. Uh, I would say it's not the only mover, again, because you had those laws that changed that provided funding in 1963 and 1967. But they certainly weren't moving very quickly until Wyatt came along in 1970. I want to thank this episode's expert for speaking to me and you for listening to this episode. This has been Off the Record, a podcast diving into the history of the university and the state of Alabama. I'm your host, Carson Silas, logging off.